Um, so this morning, we are going to look at some lessons from Nehemiah, but we're actually not going to read Nehemiah tonight. We're looking at background to lead into that. And so um, if you would open up your Bibles with me, the first scripture that I, I would like you to turn to is in, uh, it's in the book of Psalms. I want you to turn to Psalm 137. And you're going to keep your hand here because we are going to be in Psalm 137. And then, and then after Psalm 137, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 5. So one, uh, Psalm 137, then Matthew chapter 5. And uh, I want to pray one more time. Also, this week at the, the Mount Hermon Conference... Um, in uh, 2001 was when 9-11 happened on that Tuesday, and uh, it was right in the middle of the pastor's conference. And I, I just remembered how much that that had uh, affected, um, affected us as a country, affected me personally, affected our, our family. And um, that week, I remember, um, so that Tuesday, 9-11 um, happened, and then that Friday, uh, my family and I, we went out to Chili's on Blossom Hill in San Jose, we were eating there, and we were at a, a restaurant, um, and, and there was a, a girl. Her name was Nicole Miller, and uh, they had a memorial uh, kind of set up for her because she was uh, one of the servers at Chili's, and she was on the plane that went down in Pennsylvania. And so we were sitting at, at the restaurant, and um, I remember that the, the manager of the restaurant said, um, we don't want to inconvenience anyone, but um, President Bush had asked for a, a time of, of silence, but we're going to do a special memorial for Nicole um, at 7 o'clock, so we're just going to close the kitchen, and for 15 minutes, out of respect, we would ask that you'd go outside. And uh, I remember that we did that, and, and uh, it, was, it was just it, it's surreal. I mean, if you remember just going through that and seeing those things happening, and then um, they, they shared that she was on the flight, her family was there, and it was just a, a moment of silence. And um, the manager of the restaurant was there, and I said, hey, uh, do you think that someone would say a few words? And and he said, well, uh, there's the family. You could go ask the family. So I went over to the family, and I introduced myself, and I said I was a, an assistant pastor over at Calvary Chapel San Jose. And um, if they wanted me to say a few words, and they were just super thankful. They just said, please, you know, we don't know what to say. If someone could do that, that would be great. And so they told the manager of the restaurant, hey, this this gentleman wants to share something. And, and so he just... A hundred people probably in the restaurant went outside, and, and he goes, hey, could you stand on a table so they could see you? So I got to stand on a table at the, the Chili's there in Blossom Hill and to really share the hope of Christ uh, with, with those people. And, and I know that for us, you know, sometimes like time makes it kind of removed, but I know that for a lot of people it's very fresh. So I would just like to pray. Um, it, it's all tying in. When I, when I look at where our country is, we need the Lord. I remember at that time just thinking, this is something that's going to usher in this revival, that God's people are going to turn back to God, and people that are away from God will turn to Him, and they did for a little while. And, and for a little while, you saw churches filled, and you saw people praying, and, and we've gone away from that. And so this morning, I would just like to pray for those people that are still affected by that, and, and also for us. So Father, this morning... Um, we consider what happened in Israel, we consider what happened in Jerusalem, that it was a city that was meant to represent you, that got wiped out. And, and Lord, um, in the midst of that, Lord, you desired for your people to turn back to you. And Father, when I think about our own country, I, I look at how during seasons and times in our nation's history that our nation, um, maybe not everyone, but many people have turned to you. And yet, Lord, I look at today and I just feel like many people have turning, uh, are turning away from you. And Lord, as your people, we ask that you would revive us, that we wouldn't look at the world with, with judgment or shaking a fist, 
But God, as you see the multitude as sheep without a shepherd, that we would see them the same way. And Lord, we ask that you administer to those that have lost a loved one in 9-11. Lord, those that today is a, a, a hard time or this week is going to be a hard time. And for us this morning, we're asking that you would revive us. We're praying, God, that you would do a new work. And I pray if anyone doesn't know you, that today would be a day where they open up their hearts and they would just ask you to come in and, and to build in their lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, when I consider what happened in Jerusalem, I'm going to set some backdrop for you because in this election season, isn't it crazy? If any of you own a Facebook page, it blows up. You know, election year, it's just, it's just crazy, right? You have uh, people in, you know, one political party, another political party, this candidate, that candidate, they're kind of going back and forth. And, and you know what? I, I love our country. I love the United States. Um, I've been to Washington, D.C. Uh, four times, three times on a spiritual heritage tour. Do you realize that when you go in the rotunda of the Capitol and you look at all of the, the murals that are there, that depicted in there is a baptism, a prayer meeting. There's, there's many other things that are like that. Uh, the hundred statues that are there, uh, two for each state. Um, over 40 of them were ordained ministers that represent that state. So you see that God has done work in our, our nation. And yet, I really believe that with every revival, whether you go to the Welsh revival or the revival under Josiah in the Bible, or, or you look at the Great Awakening, the thing that our country needs is not political reform. What we need is Christ. What we need is we need to turn back to the Lord. And I'm not against voting. We should vote as citizens. We should be informed and we should, we should carry ourselves in a way that, that God has called us to be salt and light. But really, it's, it's God's kingdom. And God's kingdom is above and beyond my citizenship as a U.S. citizen. You know what? It's a, a citizenship in heaven. And this morning, what we're going to see is that in the book of Nehemiah, leading up to it, God's people starting from Abraham, were called to be representatives of God, to be a light to the nation so that they could reach out to other people. Uh, Jerusalem itself, the city, was to be a place in which God's presence was to be represented. Now, we know that God is everywhere, but Jerusalem in particular was something that was very special to God's heart. In 1052 BC, Jerusalem was defeated. If you read in 2 Samuel chapter 5, you know that when David came into Jerusalem, they said, you can't come in here, we're going to defeat you. And, and they were the Jebusites were really against um, the Israelites. And yet David came in and, and uh, it became known as the city of, of David or, or Zion in the midst of Jerusalem there. It became the capital. And in that time, the 12 tribes of Israel, again, this is a little bit of history, the 12 tribes of, of Israel, they were 12 distinct groups. And these 12 groups were, were all together Israel. But ten groups in the north and two groups in the south were fighting against each other. Under David's reign, they became united. And, and Jerusalem became the capital. And then David did something else. He brought the Ark of the Covenant in. Do you know what the Ark of the Covenant represents? God's presence. Now again, God is everywhere, but the Ark of the Covenant was something very special. So when they brought the Ark of the Covenant in, it was like we have, we have the presence of God here. David desired to do something else. He desired to build God a temple. Now, we know that God doesn't dwell in buildings, but this temple being a representation of where God's people can come and meet. This morning, we're here gathered as a church, and really a church is people, and sometimes we mistake it as a building, but a building is a place for us to gather together to worship the Lord. So the temple was a, a big deal. But after David died, and, and um, 
Solomon, his son, was actually the one to build the temple. When Solomon died, the nation of Israel started to fight again. And, and the ten tribes in the north against the two tribes in the south, this civil war started to erupt again over who should be the leader, who should be the king. And what happened is the ten tribes broke from the two tribes. And so in the north, if you think about northern California, just so you could picture it in your mind, imagine that Jerusalem was somewhere um, right around Los Angeles. You know, it's somewhere in the south. But then imagine that you go all the way to the north and you go to the border of Oregon and there's this beautiful place. And they say, no, we want this to be our capital, as far away from Jerusalem as we can get. A beautiful place. If you've ever been to Israel, it's a place called Tel Dan. And in Tel Dan, that's, they said, we're going to build our own temple. We're going to worship our own way. We don't want to go to the south. And so what happened is these two kingdoms, Israel in the north and called Judah in the south, they turned away from God. So if you ever read uh, the Bible, you realize that it goes from Genesis, Exodus, you go through the books of history. Then in the middle, you have the books of poetry, the Psalms and the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. And, and then you have the books of prophecy. But if you set them together as a timeline instead of, instead of the way that they're laid out in the Bible, during this time of history, in the time of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, most of the prophets ministered. And when you read Isaiah and you read Jeremiah, you read Amos, what they were doing is they were coming to the nation saying, turn back to God because you've forsaken the ways of God. You've done your own thing. You've just been, become very selfish and, and you've worshiped idols. And their idols were, were statues. There were images of gold and images of metal and wood. And today we think we don't have idols, right? But we just have these really sophisticated idols, you know, it's made out of silicon chips and it's made out of, you know, other kind of metal and rubber wheels or, you know, other kinds of wood that is inside of a house or whatever it might be. And in our own hearts, that idol is self. It's saying, I want to rule my life and I want to make my own decisions. I want to call the shots and I'm going to do what I want to do. When that happened, out of God's love, he was very patient with his people. And God is very patient with us. And he continues to reach out to us. But they, they turned away. And so eventually what God did was in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom, which is called Israel, um, the Assyrians came and wiped them out. There was a battle, there was a war, and they took the northern ten tribes into captivity. And what happened is those northern ten tribes never came back again. They were assimilated into the Assyrian people. That's why by the time you get to the New Testament, when Jesus talks about the Good Samaritans, the Samaritans and the Jews, they, they had no dealings with each other. They hated each other. Because when the northern kingdom was assimilated into Assyria, they became the Samaritan people later on. Now in the south, Babylon um, came and wiped out the south. And in the south, they thought, hey, we're good to go because we have the temple. We have, we have the word of God. We have the temple. And because we have these things, God's not going to judge us. Look, we're, we're Christian or you know, Jewish, we're, we're Hebrew, we're God's people. And sometimes we could say, well, we're a, we're a Christian nation. You know, we're a Christian country. And yet the same things that a nation, an individual is susceptible to, a nation is susceptible to. And if God judges us and, and there, we reap what we sow as individuals, the same thing could be true for a nation. What happened in Israel or in Judah in the south is that God said, because of your idolatry 
and your disobedience. You didn't obey me. You didn't obey my Sabbath. Now, in the New Testament, if this is all new to you, then I I hope this makes sense as we bring it together um, in a moment here. The Old Testament, they were under the Old Covenant. So when you read from Genesis to Malachi, they were under the law. We are now under this new covenant. Christ has come to fulfill the old covenant. It was the blood of Christ, the blood of the Lamb of God, that basically fulfilled the Old Testament. So for us, we could come to Christ, we can come to God because of what Jesus has done. So Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. But I do want to say this, Sabbath is still important. Remember that God instituted this day of rest before the law. And I've been looking at the last 15 days for me, just going and pushing and and the Lord really convicted me in doing this study that, Matt, you need to take Sabbath because if you don't take Sabbath, your body's going to take it from you. In a sense, there are times when we get sick and God just lays us up because we're just, we're just pushing. You know, we just go and we just, and, and God wants to replenish us and revive us. And it's not a guilt thing. It's he wants us to spend time with him. He wants us to rest in his presence. And, and so when they disobeyed God about the Sabbath, let me tell you what it was about. It was about money. Um, I mean, it was worship, but it was also money. Imagine you own a farm, and uh, it's a Sabbath day, and on that day you're resting. Your crops are sitting there, and they're ripe. They're ready to be picked. They're, the corn is ready to be sold. The wheat is ready to be harvested. You're not doing anything because God says on that day in the Old Testament law, you were to sit and rest and just have that time of refreshment and know that God would provide and trust the Lord with your first fruits. But then there's a guy that doesn't worship God. He's across the street from you. You know what that guy's doing today? He's harvesting. He's bringing all of his goods to the marketplace and he's selling it. And now there's a gut check. Man, he's getting ahead of me. Am I going to trust what God said or am I going to compete with this guy? You know what? Okay, we're open for business. I'm cutting 3% less than him. And and now this bidding war happens. and, And before you know it, years and decades and centuries go by where they don't obey God's Sabbath. Finally, when judgment comes because they didn't obey a Sabbath, because they were in idolatry and they were in sin and rebellion towards God, God says, now, for every one of those seven years, on the seventh year, you were to let the land rest. I'm going to require it from you. So for 70 years, the south goes into captivity. And Babylon takes them captive. And this this is going to be the backdrop for us when we read this psalm here. In Psalm 137, um, As we consider Psalm 137, God desired Jerusalem to be like this city that was a representation of God's presence. But because they rebelled against God, God sent them into exile in Babylon. And what we have is we have a a psalm in which we have the historical context of it. And in Psalm 137, it says, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. There were those who carried us away captive, and they asked of us a song. And those who plundered us requested mirth, saying, Sing one of the songs of Zion. Now, we could read this and say, well, that was way back then. But imagine if some other country came in and took over here. Imagine if another country came and took us captive to some other place wiped us out, decimated us, carried us away, humiliation. I mean, we thought we were the strongest nation and 
We didn't think that that could happen here. Just can you imagine? That's what God's people felt because they had God's presence. He had given them victory over so many enemies and so many foes, and they, they really got self-confident, and they didn't, they didn't believe the prophets. And the prophets kept saying, hey, you got to turn back to God. And, and what happens in our own lives is sometimes we say, you know what? I could do things on my own. Nothing's going to happen. Maybe you were afraid of rebelling against God for a season. You know, when, when you sin, you feel like, the, you know, a pot's going to fall on your head as you're walking out in the street or, or uh, you know, something bad's going to happen. But, hey, nothing, nothing really happened. And then you stop believing that anything's going to happen. You stop believing that God even cares or he's going to do anything. And, and there's a drift that happened in Israel. But when Babylon came and took them away, they were humiliated. And then when they were taken there, just imagine this. It says that we hung up our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. Think about this imagery. They stopped playing worship. Imagine the guitars. Imagine the djembes. Imagine the keyboards. Just put them away. I remember when we used to play instruments. I remember when we used to sing. But you know what? We don't sing anymore. And that happens to us personally when we're in depression, we're in defeat. I mean, praise and worship stops. I remember when I was teaching for, for one season at a, a public school. And during that time, I was just going through a lot. And I was getting burned out. And, and I had one student that came up to me and said, hey, Mr. Valencia. I said, yeah, yeah what's up? She said, you know what? There's something different about you. I said, what's different? She said, when you started working here, you used to smile. She said, you don't smile anymore. I said, what do you mean I don't smile? I smile. You know, I'm getting all mad at her. And she's like, yeah, you used to smile. And, and she actually went to Calvary Chapel, West Covina. So she was a part of the youth group. She knew me. And, and she left. And, and she said, you're different, you know, when you used to be like a youth worker. And now you're a teacher. And you're not smiling. And the Lord really convicted me of that. See, during times of defeat, during times of fatigue, during times of difficulty, sometimes it's really hard to sing. They hung up their harps. Maybe, maybe for you, your walk with God, you've just kind of hung it up. You're going through motions right now. You're a shell. You come and you sit. Other people are singing. Other people are worshiping. And all it is, it's biding time. It's religion. You're, you're going through it. And you know what? God wants to connect with us. He wants us to worship. And part of worship doesn't mean that we put on a happy face and we fake it. It means that we really cry out to the Lord, God, I'm broken. God, I'm hurting. God, I'm, I'm depressed. God, you, the church should be a place. This is a place where it's okay not to be okay, right? It should be, and it is. It's a place where it's okay not to be okay all the time. When the psalmists write, they're not making happy songs all the time. This is a very sad song. It, it talks about they hung them up. What kind of tree did they hang them up on? Willow trees. What does a willow tree look like? It looks depressed. I mean, they're pretty, you know, by a river. If you go to like New Orleans Square or something like that in Disneyland, oh, it's really pretty, the fireflies and everything. But really, they're like drooped down and they're just kind of sad. And it's kind of, it's a sad tree. You know, Bob Ross, you know, he probably makes happy trees. But this is like a, this is a sad tree. So they hung up their harps. And, uh, and then the people that took them away captive in Babylon, they began to mock them saying, hey, why don't you sing one of your songs for us? You know, hey, where's that song of mirth, this song of joy? You know, come and, and play one of your worship, your praise songs. And you know what? The world mocks us at times. And sometimes there's a, um, a real physical mocking where someone can say something. But I'll tell you what the enemy could mock us as well. 
because we sing songs. And it's been said before that Christians don't tell lies, they sing lies. You know, we sing, I surrender all, but really we're saying, I surrender some. We're singing, oh, happy day, and we're really singing, this is a terrible day, terrible day, you know. And, and like, you know, it's kind of like we sing these things, and the enemy can come and mock you and say, you don't really mean that. You can't sing these songs. God isn't in control. Look at your life. Your life is a mess. Look at what you've done. Look at these mistakes you've made. Look at how, how you've messed up so many relationships, how there's people that you love that won't even talk to you. You can't sing praise to God. And so this is what they felt like. And they understood that a result was because this result was their own sin. And you know what? During this season, in this time, in verse 4, they said, How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And then they remembered Jerusalem. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. Why? Because Jerusalem was a city on a hill. This city on a hill, when you read the the Psalms of Ascent, uh, beautiful, right after Psalm 119, and you read those next 15 Psalms, they were Psalms that they would say as they were traveling on pilgrimage up to Jerusalem. And if you put yourself in Jesus' times, there's no streetlights. What there are is there's torchlights. And as you are very far away in the desert and you are going towards Jerusalem in the evening, all you see is a city that's set on a hill and you see lights. And it's a reminder of God's presence. And what the psalmist is saying is, Jerusalem, if I forget you, let my right hand forget its skill. Uh, Mattis Yahoo is one of my favorite musicians. He's a, a Hasidic Jew um, that uh, he has, you know, the, the full-on hat and the curly cues, and he's a rapper, and he's, he's awesome. And he sings this song about Jerusalem, if I forget you, let my right hand forget what it's supposed to do. And, and you know, God's people in the Old Testament, they understood that they were not living the life that God had intended for them to live. And they were reaping the consequences of it. I look at us as a nation. I look at us as the church, capital C. I'm not talking about Calvary Chapel Santa Cruz. I'm talking about the church in America. And what I see is there's some devastation. You know that churches are closing faster than they are opening? Do you realize that? I mean, if you watch the video that we showed last week, it's a, it's a bleak picture. Now there are pockets of hope. And those pockets of hope are people, God's people, that are being called to revival. When I went with my wife to um, visit her, her relatives in West Virginia, we stopped a- along the way. Um, those historical landmarks are everywhere on the East Coast. I mean, you just stop, and it's just so fun to stop and read history. But one, one was very sad for me because I stopped at a place called Sam Black Church. And it, I was just kind of like taken by the name, Sam Black Church. What is that? And so I, I stopped, and I read the marker, and it said, this is the name of a city. It's called Sam Black Church. And the city started because there was a revival preacher named Sam Black. He came to the city. He preached the gospel. People came to know Christ. And they said, could you come back and teach again next Sunday? So they came back and they brought friends with them. They gathered together. And they said, you know what? Next week, can you preach again? And he preached again. And they said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to just keep bringing people. Could you keep preaching? And the draw of the city was the word of God being taught by this preacher named Sam Black. The sad thing is Sam Black Church is a monument today. Now, maybe it's, you know, economics. Maybe they built an interstate somewhere else, and that's what happened. But I think it's a representation of what happens when people don't worship God the same way that God has called us to worship Him. 
And so in Psalm 137, it ends with this last part. It says, remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it. That means like make it bare or wipe it out to its very foundation. Um, not raised like R-A-I-S-E, but R-A-Z-E. In verse 8, O daughter of Babylon, who are to be destroyed, happy be the one who repays you as you have served us. Happy uh, is the one who takes and dashes your little ones against the rock. Now, that's intense language. This is called an imprecatory psalm. It's where the psalmist is just really just bearing his soul and just sharing his gut feeling. It's not a happy psalm. For us as New Testament believers under the New Covenant, we're to forgive our enemies, we're to love our enemies, right? But as we read this, I just want you to sense the devastation. Because the book of Nehemiah is a book that begins in utter devastation. The book of Nehemiah is a book about one man who hears about the condition of Jerusalem and reflects the heart of Psalm 137 and says, Oh God, this is not how it should be. And Nehemiah does not point the finger and cast judgment at everyone else. You know what he does? He prays and he says, both I and my father's house have sinned. So sometimes in this political season, we could look around at the enemy and say, you're the enemy and it's out there. But no, we just have to look in the mirror and say, God, forgive me. See, death comes into this world because of sin. And the other day, uh, or yesterday, actually, at the men's breakfast, I was talking to a, a gentleman, and, and uh, we, were, we were sad as a family because we have a, a gecko that died. And, and we had the gecko for about 10 years in our family. It was our daughter, uh, Rebecca's, and she's in college, so we had to call her and let her know that uh, her, her gecko died, and she was crying over the phone. It was, it was really sad. Uh, our little girl said goodbye, and our, our, my son, Josiah, said goodbye, and... and um, Yesterday at the men's breakfast was when I got news that uh, the gecko was dying. And, and one brother just kind of shared with me, he said, you know, because I really love animals also. And he said, and I, what I realized was whenever I see an animal die, I realize that's, that's a result of my sin indirectly. Like he didn't cause that particular animal to die, but death came into this world because of sin. Jesus wept. Remember when he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead? Didn't Jesus know that he was going to raise him from the dead? He did know that. Why did he weep? I really believe because sin brings death. Jesus wept because he saw the result of sin and what it does to us as human beings. See, there's a weeping that happens when we understand these things. And so when we look at whether it's a whole nation being devastated, when we look at one person or a family or, or a church, we look at devastation that sin causes, and it causes us, like Nehemiah, to say both I and my father's house we have sinned, and we ask God for restoration. We ask God to rebuild. The whole thing of Nehemiah, as we get into it, I'm so excited about it because it's all about restoration and rebuilding. God rebuilding what was broken, restoring what was lost, restoring what has been burned out. Maybe some of you are burned out. Maybe some of you, that fire is really dim right now. I mean, you know the Lord, and by faith, you know that he's there. You've received Christ but you couldn't really explain your relationship with God is vibrant right now. Maybe it's not joyful. And you know what? We all, all go through seasons like that. And God wants to restore and renew us. See, the city that is set on a hill, what Jerusalem was to represent, is now what we as Christians are to represent. You and I are God's love letters to this world. 
So there are people that will never read a Bible, but they'll read you. There are people that will never come to a church, but they'll watch you. They'll watch me. And what happens is, is our lives become, as we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, we bring God's presence wherever we are. Sometimes I hear people say, well, I'm leaving my job. Well, why are you leaving? Such a dark place. I got to get out of there. Well, maybe you're the only light that's there. Maybe God has you there for a reason. See, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is going to address this very thing. Because if we're ever going to read the book of Nehemiah and understand that, if we are ever going to apply that to our lives today in this new covenant relationship with God, we don't live in Israel. We don't live in Jerusalem. You know, we live here. And, and we, we are in this world now. But we have to understand, this is the city that God desires from us. This is the church, the gathering, the ecclesia of God's people. And, and the, the characteristics that represent the characteristics of our Lord and Savior who has died for us. So Jesus, it says in uh, Matthew chapter 5, seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain and when he was seated, who came to him? His disciples came to him. Is Jesus speaking right now primarily to unbelievers or to believers? To believers. This is to you and me. If you're a Christian, if you're not, then understand this is what, Christ-like people are to live like. And if we have fallen short, we are sorry for that. We want you to look to Christ, but we want to repent, and we want to live better in such a way that, that brings people to Christ. But what it says here, Jesus opened his mouth. Now, we're going to read through this, and we're not going to do an expository sermon because it would take too long to really deal with each one. But let me, let me say that Jesus opened his mouth. Why is that in the Bible? I mean, why, why, does, why does the Holy Spirit choose to include this simple truth in Scripture for us? Because it means that we have to open our mouths sometimes, right? St. Francis of Assisi has this, this famous saying, and, and I, I love it to a certain degree. It says, preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. And, and I want to say this, that it's both. It's words and actions. The gospel takes on a real vibrant life when the words meet the actions of a person's life. See, if it's just the words, God's word is true, and people still might come, but I'll tell you what, when it's exemplified in a life, then people say, now I, you've just opened my ears to want to hear. Because people don't want to hear when the life doesn't match the thing that's being said. And so what Jesus is saying, he opened his mouth, and there was no one that would ever doubt that what Jesus is saying didn't match his life. Even when he was accused, they could never bring anything about his life against him. He opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If we are to be a church that, that exemplifies Christ, if we are to be a people that exemplifies Christ, then, then Jesus here himself is saying that we're blessed when we are poor in spirit. And being poor in spirit means that we understand that we have been ripped off, that we are absolutely um, we're impoverished spiritually. The person that thinks they don't need God and has it all together never receives the blessing of realizing that they're the poor in spirit because the ones that realize it are the ones that come to Christ. The ones that realize it are the ones that say, God, fill me. I am absolutely poor. The people that say, well, I, I, you know, I don't need God. I'm not going to come to church. I'm not going to worship God. I'm not going to read the Bible because my life is good. See, the sad thing is they never receive the blessing 
And Jesus says, blessed is the person that is poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Again, mourning over sin. It's a mourning over what this world has come to because a result of sin. Yesterday at our men's breakfast, we looked at the result of the fall and how it took everything. The thief comes to rob, kill, and destroy. Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and life more abundantly. God wants us to live this abundant life. But I, I pray that there are times that we mourn because we realize we've, we've been ripped off. We've missed out and the world has been ripped off. It says in verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I really pray that as Christians that we come across as being meek. I think too many times as Christians we come across as, you know, the angry talk show host that is like, you know, just like, uh, you know, and, and just in people's face. I'm not about, you know, truth is truth, and, but yet we're to speak the truth in what? Love. Jesus, full of grace and truth. There's, a, there's both. It's not one or the other. And so in this meekness, you know what makes us meek? Um, meek is a two-syllable word. Did you know that? Maybe those, those of you that study English, you think it's only a one-syllable word. No, it's me-ick. Okay, that's meek. And we understand when it's me-ick, then we say that's what meekness is. Because if I'm feeling like I'm above and better than people, I'm not going to be meek. I'm going to cross, come across judgmental. I'm going to come across very harsh. I'm going to come across very self-righteous. But when I know my heart, because I compare it to the Lord, not to other people, and when the Holy Spirit searches my heart, I say, there's so much junk that God needs to clean up in my life. And it causes a meekness. Because we all, we all drink from the same well. We all receive from the same Savior. In verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. God wants us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. I pray that as Christians, that a, a life that pleases God is not something that's an afterthought. Well, I'm already saved, I'm going to heaven, and that's all that counts. No, that's not all that counts. You know, that's, that's the blessing of being saved by grace through faith. But realize this, that we are to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And those who hunger and thirst, notice that they shall be filled. Hunger, thirst. Sometimes that hunger and thirst for righteousness, it comes with a physical hunger and thirst, a, a fasting, a time of just saying, God, I need to seek you, and I need to ask you to, to search my heart and to show me my own life. And as we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we are filled. See, this brokenness as a Christian is a good thing. Brokenness in the world, it's a bad thing. It's just broken. But as a Christian, when we're broken, that's the place we're restoration, repair comes from when we're broken before the Lord in a good brokenness. Blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. Um, I, I want God to be merciful with me. This morning we were singing one of those songs about God's mercy. I loved it. It was like, God, I need mercy today. Um, and scripture says that his mercies are new every day. So uh, I remember I, I received a fax one time and someone sent it. It said 12.01 a.m. It said mercy renewed. It's just kind of a cool thing, you know, just to remind us that every day God's, God's mercy is new for today, and it covers us for today. And because God is merciful, we should be merciful for others. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. If I want to see God work, if I want to see Him move, then I have to understand that there's a purity of heart that God desires for me. 
Again, it's not to earn salvation or it's not to earn some kind of relationship with God, but I want to see God work. I want to see Him move. I want to know Him more. In verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We reflect God's image when we are peacemakers. It's easy to be neutral, to say, I I just don't want to get involved. You have two friends that are fighting, and you just kind of let them fight, and just kind of like let them duke it out, because you know that if you try to get in there, then they're going to turn on, one of them is going to turn on you. And so there's that possibility. And yet when we're peacemakers, we reflect the image of our, our Heavenly Father. It says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I want you to notice that it says, persecuted for what? Righteousness' sake. You can be persecuted just because you're a jerk and think, oh, I'm being persecuted. Well, you deserve it. You know, when I I act like that, I deserve it. This is for righteousness' sake. Because in verse 11, he says, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. When you represent Christ, know this, you're drawing enemy fire. Just know that spiritual warfare happens. And know that you could, again, talk about God generic in public and it's no big deal. And everyone says, yeah, they'll clap, you know, and they'll sing with you and everything's good until you say, Jesus. And when it's Jesus Christ, Lord, Savior, man, all of a sudden, people, the hair on their back of their neck stands up and they get very tense and and it's very controversial. And yet it's for Jesus' sake. And when that happens in verse 12, it says, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward. Where? In heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, we could rejoice in this. And I think so much of Christianity at times is trying to avoid persecution. See, none of us wants to stand out. Uh, Our human nature is to want to fit in. Now, that's a junior high thing. That's a high school thing. It's a college thing. It's a middle-aged thing. It's a senior citizen thing. It's a human thing. It's something that all of us, as, as people, we, we desire to fit in. And sometimes when we don't, it doesn't feel good. And, and it's so easy just to compromise because we just want to look like everyone else. We just kind of want to go with the flow. We don't want to be on the radar. But when we are on the radar, when we live in this way, here's the result as I close with this, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You and I are the salt of the earth. And what is salt? First of all, in Jesus' time, salt was a preservative. It kept things from rotting. It kept things from going bad. And God has called us in this world that we live in to be preservative. He's called us to be salt so that, hey, this world, as it gets worse, we're to be the ones that preserve things. Yes, we vote, but more than vote, we need to pray. We need to ask the Lord to change our hearts, to change things, to change people, to draw people to himself. You know what else salt does? It says here that salt gives flavor. Now, salt, it, it's a great seasoning, but how many of you have ever, when you're a kid, you know, unscrewed the top of the salt thing, you know, so that someone would come and they do the salt and the whole thing comes out? If you take a mouthful of a, a meal that is filled with salt, it no longer is flavorful. You want to spit it out. You want to get rid of it. And see, sometimes Christians can come across like that. 
And we could just like be right in someone's face and just like dumping salt on them. And, and rather than being sensitive to the Holy Spirit and ministering to the needs of people, we just, you know, we just, you know, it's like salting a snail. You know, you just follow it around and it starts bubbling up. And I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> I used to do that before I was a Christian, okay? So salt. I'll tell you another thing that salt does. Salt breaks down hard things. You salt a road. It breaks down that ice. It makes it so that it's, it's pliable. It breaks something down. And so God has called us to be salt. And then in verse 14, you're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. God has called us to be the light of this world. And again, light, it's, it's so incredible. These analogies that Jesus pulls out, light brings warmth. Light illuminates things that were once dark. It enables people to see, but a laser pointed in someone's eyes will burn out a retina. And so God has called us to be salt. He's called us to be light. And then in verse 16, and we'll close with this scripture, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. See, when we let our light shine, what that means is this. It means that not only do we believe the gospel, not only do we share the gospel and preach the gospel, but that we live the gospel. That's our message. It's not us, it's what Jesus has done. But they want to know what, what, is, what good is the message if it doesn't change a life? What kind of good works do we do? I, I was just reading... Um, yesterday in the Scotts Valley local newspaper here, uh, the Santa Cruz County Hospice Care is looking for volunteers. And I was thinking about that. I was thinking, wow, we, we watched our gecko die, and that was a sad thing. It was very hard just, just holding a, an animal. And I just think, what a way to bring the gospel to people than to sit with them during times of hospice care. See, it's when we act in that way that people say, what is the hope that is within you? Why do you even care about me? When, when we reach out to people and we help them, we see someone moving into the neighborhood and we just say, hey, how's it going? We just say, hey, do you need some help moving? And we just start helping them move or whatever it might be. When we do things like that, you know what it does? It opens a door and it shows them that we love them. It shows them that we care. It shows them that Christians are not people that we, we're a city on a hill, but it's a gated hill and you can't get in. No, that's, that's not what it is. It's a city of refuge. And the city of refuge should be a place that's a light that brings people, that draws people. There's a welcoming. And how are they going to feel that? Unless you go out and I go out into their lives. Because, yeah, it's great. Invite people to church. I'm not, I'm not knocking. Invite them, you know, so they hear the gospel. Invite them so that they can be around God's people. But you know what? God told us to go. We're to go to them. So it's, yes, come and see, but it's also go and tell. It's not either or. It's both. And that's what a missional church is called to do, to be on mission where God has called us to. I want to close in, in praying for this because as a church, as, as a people of God, um, I thought it was so important for us before we get into Nehemiah to understand this is what the rebuilding process is about. It's returning back to what Jesus just talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. That city that is set on a hill, it's reflected by my heart and your heart. It's by how we live out the gospel. It's not only the words that we say. It's not just the clothes we wear or a bumper sticker. It's, it's the fruit. It's living life next to people. And as we do that, 
they'll know that we're Christians by our, our love also for one another. Don't say, well, I love people outside the church. I just don't love people in the church. That's, that's kind of hypocritical. You know, that's kind of sad to say, well, the church is full of hypocrites. Well, come and join us, you know, because, <laughs> uh, you know, and again, we're, we're not like full on hypocrites. Hopefully, I think we're all kind of semis, you know, we, we try to do the best that we can and we fall short. And so I pray that God in his grace allows us to be salt and light, that they don't see us. It's not about us. It's not about our church name. It's not about our own personal reputation. It's about Christ in us, the hope of glory. And so I'm going to have the ushers come forward and the worship team. We're going to, to pray. And, and if you're new and visiting or you don't know the Lord, please don't, don't give. Um, this is something for God's people. Again, some people give online or in other, other places. But, but we set this time apart not only to worship the Lord, but to say, God, we're worshiping you by putting you first. And, and as we ask God to do this work in us, I pray that, that God this week gives us opportunities to be light. If you're in a dark place around people that don't know him, don't run from that situation. You know, the average Christian, here's the sad thing, after two years doesn't have any Christian friends because they begin to pull so far away from the world that they, they can't be the salt and the light. Let's be salt and let's be light. Let's pray. Father, this morning there is so much for us to, to take in. But Lord, first of all, we want to respond to what you have done. The gospel, Lord, is not about our good works, but it is about your good works. It's about what you have done for us. So Lord, when we give to you, Lord, when we witness to people, when we sing, God, when we go out and we help people, when we're there for them, Lord, I pray that it would be a response because of what you have already done for us. Taking that proper perspective, Lord, we desire to worship you. And Lord, in your word, you've, you've promised us that when we draw near to you, you'll draw near to us. So Lord, this morning we're sitting here and, and it's not about our altitude being up on a hill, but Lord, it's the attitude of our hearts. And Lord, I pray that we would draw near to you and you would draw near to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.